0: All right, friends, good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1. Through 22. If we have not had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Kenson. I serve as a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport Church. Uh, I haven't been here for the last couple of months, so it's always a pleasure to have a chance to open the Word of God with you. And on occasion, too, uh, we're your pastors, Pastor Rafe. He's actually bringing his teaching gift over to Bridgeport and blessing my people with that. So occasionally we do this as just a way to serve one another and to also give a chance just for our congregations to hear a different voice when it comes uh, to teaching. And opening up the word. So, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. As you guys are turning there, just to remind you that we are in week two of our two year series of the Gospel of Luke, which means that none of you are allowed to leave the city until the two years is done. Okay, so you have to hang around. So last week, if you were here, we, we opened up with some background on the book of Luke and how Luke, a physician, a Gentile physician, a non-Jewish th- physician, writes this gospel to Theophilus, who was most likely you know, a, a, a Roman government official and sponsored Luke to do this because Theophilus was a young believer and Luke wanted to strengthen his faith. So what Luke does is that he pays very careful attention to give a historical record from firsthand eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That Luke traveled with Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys. So Luke would have had a chance to meet Jude and Matthew and Mark and and, and Peter and and all these guys. And I think one of the eyewitnesses was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because last week, as we saw here, with Jesus being lost in the temple, how else would Luke would have known? uh, Well, I guess the Holy Spirit could have told him but i believe mary told him that hey i got a really embarrassing story that i want to confess i lost the son of god for a couple of days that's a rough day that is a rough day but actually if you notice this diligence that luke has with being a historian we see this actually in our first two verses look at this here He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea, inherited the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ityria, and Triconius, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke here sets up the scene internationally, nationally, and spiritually. That the highest office was Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor after Caesar Augustus. That's the international scene. Then you have Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the province, and Herod, the Jewish governor of that province. That's the national scene. Then you have Ananias and Caiaphas, the priest of the temple. That's the religious scene. Luke does all of this so that Theophilus would know that what he records really happened in a time and place. That, that if you recall, Pilate, Herod, and Ananias, and Caiaphas all had a role in the judgment and crucifixion of Jesus. You know, our hope and prayer is that through this sermon series is that your faith in God would be strengthened. Just like Theophilus, through Luke's work, And to know that Jesus is the Savior of all humanity and that we would join Him in that redemptive work. So, with that, let's go ahead and read our verses here today and we'll jump in, okay? So, verses 3 to 22 here, once again in Luke chapter 3. So, starting at verse 3, and let me just read. And He, John the Baptist, being referred here, and He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, "'We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, even now that ax is laid to the root of the trees.'" Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he shall burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 18. So with many exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod heard the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. And when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. The word GOAT is often used as an acronym to describe the greatest of all time, and usually it comes along with, you know, sporting figures, you know, for example, Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Uh, The 1990s Bulls team, you know, was the GOAT of that decade of, of basketball, Lionel Messi is the GOAT of soccer. Usain Boat is the GOAT of the 100-meter dash. Michael Phelps is the GOAT of swimming. You know, you have Serena Williams, who's the GOAT of tennis. You have Muhammad Ali, the GOAT of boxing. Uh, Simone Biles is the GOAT of gymnastics. Tom Brady is the GOAT of football. And if you were to Google right now the great one, a picture of a hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, would pop up. Now, why are these athletes called the GOAT? It means to be unique to be singular, to be above the rest. That's the definition of greatness. You know, today we're introduced to John the Baptist, and this is a person who Jesus Christ says these words. Matthew 11:11. let me show it to you. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, what made John so great? Well, first off, it wasn't because he lived a long life. He died at a relatively young age. He was put in prison and executed, as we actually see here in our verses. Thus, he didn't have a very long ministry. He wasn't great because he had performed miracles. From what we can understand and what we read in the Gospels, John never performed any miracles like Elijah or Elisha or anyone like that. You know, John wasn't great because of his wardrobe or his diet. It says in scripture that he wore a camel's hair, that he ate locusts and honey, that he lived out in, in the desert. It, John the Baptist was a very like peculiar person. So what made John great? It's because of the message he was called to proclaim. Now what was happening is that in John's ministry and teaching, crowds were coming from everywhere and, they were, and John was having immense impact on people. So people were asking, what is going on with this guy? Is, is, he, is he the Messiah? Is, is he Elijah? Is he the goat? You know, verse 15 and 16, this is how John responds. As the people were in expectation waiting for a Messiah, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John is clear. Hey, hey, I'm not the goat. Instead, I'm the one who is pointing to the goat, that this person is so great to come that I'm not even worthy to be a slave in his presence to to untie his sandals. John's saying that if you think I'm great, you haven't seen anything yet. And frankly, this is the reason why Jesus called John the greatest man to ever live. It's not because of what he did or necessarily who he was, but it's because of what he proclaimed. His message was all about Jesus. That John was not the destination. He was pointing others to the destination. John was not the way. He was preparing the way for someone else to come. Just look at Luke's introduction of John here in verses 4 to 6. This is what Luke says about John. And this is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is just a voice. He's just a messenger, he's just a guy working the road. And what's referenced here is what's been done for thousands of years when royalty was to come through a city or town, that what would happen is that couriers would go up in front ahead of the, the royalty, or ahead of the king, and would announce to that region, the king is on his way, you better fix your roads, you better clean your homes, you better make the streets path, you feel, you know, you see these bumps in the road, you better take care of them, the king is coming. You know, this stuff still happens here today. You know, for example, just last week, our vice president was in the neighborhood, and when they were here, my wife was actually stuck because all the highways and streets, local streets, were all closed down. And I have a really strong feeling that when the vice president, Kamal Harris, came through, that she wasn't driving through potholes, and they cleaned up the trash along the streets. This was John's calling. He was not the way, he was called to prepare the way. His job was to prepare the hearts of people. For Jesus. So what then was this message of preparation? It's in verse 3. And he, John the Baptist, went into all the regions around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a message of repentance. Now, first off, what does repentance even mean? Repentance in the Greek literally means to change the way you think. Practically speaking, repentance means that you're walking in one direction, that you're walking in the direction of sin, a direction that is away from God. And repentance means that you turn 180 degrees and walk towards God, that you leave your life of sin and ask for forgiveness and dedicate and devote your life to God. That's repentance. Now, it's important that as, that as we define repentance to also recognize that there are false forms of repentance, things that look like repentance, but aren't really it, okay? Let me just give you a couple of examples here. For example, mere confession is a false repentance. This is a person who just says, sorry, 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 I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but they're not really sorry because they are not really changing. That's a false repentance. Another false repentance is worldly sorrow. This is where you feel bad, but you don't change. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in. There's not a new heart, not a new life, not new desires, not a new Lord. And the result is that you do feel bad primarily because you got caught, but you don't feel bad for hurting the heart of God. That is a false repentance. You know, another false repentance is repenting so that God would bless you. Now, a lot of false religions practice this all the time. It's kind of how you manipulate God to, to do what you want him to do. So you say, like, you know what, in your head, and you, I want to be healthy. I want to be rich. I want to be successful. I want to be married. I want to, have, I want to have kids that obey me. So you know what? I'm going to repent. I'm going to do what I need to do and say sorry to God, and then he'll give me something when I repent. That is a false repentance, That is not turning to God, that is using God. And finally, a false repentance is excuse making. This is where you see your sin and you find a way to justify it or minimize it or shift blame so you don't really have to own the responsibility of completely changing but, you know, for example, you know, hey, you know what? All right, fine, you know, I did sin, yes, you know, I, I, it's, it's obvious, I, I did sin, but, 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 I have bad genetics, you know. It predisposes me to alcoholism or gluttony or to anger. You know, I'm Italian, so I get angry. I'm Irish, I get angry. You know, I'm, I'm Chinese, so I'm passive aggressive. You know, that's just what I am. Uh, you know, have you seen my Myers Briggs and my personality, you know, assessments? Have you seen my Enneagram? You know, when I sin, you know, it's just I am who I am. Or, or for example, or, or we shift blame. Like, for example, my, my kid. On Thursday, the teacher emailed me, and my kid uh, was caught uh, for yelling and pushing another kid. So when I talked to my son about this and say, hey, man, like, what's going on? Like, I heard that you pushed another kid. He knew that he was wrong. He knew that he was wrong. But his very next words to me when I said, did you push another kid, was not that I'm sorry. His first words were, but he pushed me first. He yelled at me first, so I had to push him back. You know, part of me is like, oh, that's okay, all right. Way to stand up for yourself. But then I'm like, no, that's not good parenting. So I was like, you know, did you really have to push him back? I don't think you had to. I don't think anyone was forcing you to do that. You chose to do that. So you see what's going on here? This is all a false repentance because these are all excuses that minimizes the need for change. You hear that word change? I'm using that word a lot. The need for change. True repentance says this. I'm a sinner, period. I need to change, period. So Jesus, please forgive me and help me to deeply change. That is repentance. So let me ask you as we get started here, is your life marked with true repentance this morning? Is it marked with true repentance? So with that, I wanna share with you three insights to what true biblical repentance looks like. And here are the three points to move us along. So first, true repentance acknowledges that you are a sinner, We're, we're sinners. Second, true repentance acknowledges that you cannot save yourself. And then finally, if there is true repentance, you will bear fruit. So first, true repentance acknowledges that you are a sinner. Uh, Verse seven again. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wow, okay, John is not messing around. His first words of his sermon is not a playful illustration. It's not something to ease you into the topic, like, you know, like who's the goats nowadays, right? He starts off by saying, you bunch of slimy snakes. That's how he starts the sermon. Now, in this one verse, he does a couple of things, three things. First, he says to the whole crowd, you are in rotten shape. He says that you are a brood of vipers. Now, any good Jewish boy and girl would know that that is not a flattering statement because in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is pictured as a serpent. So what, what John is saying to them is that when he calls them a brood of vipers, he is saying that you are the sons and daughters of the devil. You are Satan's children. You are not God's children. Second insight here from this one verse, John warns that there's a wrath that is coming. God will bring judgment upon Satan, his demons, and those who don't repent. In verse 17, Jesus is being described as what he's going to do when he arrives. Verse 17 says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 17 is an analogy of judgment. Now, what we have here is that back in this ancient part of the world, actually in the Middle Eastern culture, you would have wheat farmers in this part of the world, and what they would do is that they would separate the chaff from the wheat by taking long wooden forks called the wooden wing fork, and what they would do is that they would take the grain, they would scoop it up, and they would throw it all up into the air. And what would happen is that the Mediterranean winds would come through, and it will blow all the light stuff, out of the air and to the other side, and all the heavier stuff, the wheat, would fall right back onto the ground. That's the separation. Now what happens to the chaff that's been blown? It's collected and it's burned up because it is good for nothing and the wheat is kept. What this means is that there are sons of God and sons of the viper, that there are those who will go to heaven and those who will go to the fires of hell. Verse 16, it says, Jesus here will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is to be consumed by the love of God, but the baptism of fire is to be consumed by the judgment of God. Notice here that Jesus divides all people into two categories here. Not me, Jesus does this. Those who trust in him, he gives eternal life, abundant life, reconciled life with God. There's forgiveness of sins. You are adopted as a child of God. But we also see here that there is severity for those who don't trust in Jesus for salvation. There is an unquenchable fire, a fire that burns for all eternity. The reason John is so harsh is because the situation is so dire. But then finally, third insight of this verse, there is some good news. John says in verse seven, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you? John is amazed. He knows that left to themselves, they would have never come to the Jordan River to be baptized. That left to themselves, they would choose rebellion against God. Yet here they are at the Jordan River. John knows that God is at work. That Jesus himself would say, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. These brood of vipers would never come to repentance unless God drew them and impressed upon their hearts, their need for salvation. You know, what we see here is the beginning stages of repentance. It starts with conviction. It's acknowledging that we are sinners, that this conviction can come through Scripture, preaching the Holy Spirit, our conscience, Christian friends. It's realizing that we are not living in obedience with God's character and His commands. Conviction means that I feel something is wrong because of my sin, the emptiness that I feel, the anger, the addiction, the lust, the guilt, the shame. There is something deeply wrong with my soul and it needs to be fixed, so I go to the Jordan River. So I go to Park Community Church on September 24th or I go to my Christian friends because I need help. Friends, if you are here today because of this, I believe that God is starting a work of repentance in your heart because it's that spark of conviction that God uses. Here's a second point for us here. True repentance acknowledges that you cannot save yourself from your sin. Verse 3 And he, John the Baptist, went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, what John is saying here is that if you have truly repented, you have truly turned, if you you have truly turned the direction of your life and your affections of your heart and you love God above everything else, show it through water baptism. Baptism. Now, I know this might sound a bit legalistic, but let me explain to you why this practice of, this practice of baptism is so important. Uh, John is basically telling them, asking them, to publicly declare through baptism what is already true about your heart. If you really are devoted to Jesus, come out and show it, show it outwardly. Uh, let's be honest here. It's easy to follow Jesus in secret. There's no cost to that. It's easy to do that. It's easy to confess privately your sins between me and God. That's easy to do. It's another thing to outwardly demonstrate your commitment and transformation. It's you, you notice when you come public, when you become public with your faith, you're now held accountable. Now what you say means something. You know, here's kind of a loose illustration of this, okay? I recently met with a couple just last week that just started dating and they were in this awkward stage where they're now official but it was unknown to most people because they've kept it on a down low you know they're at church you know, yeah, you know we don't want people to know still so they're asking like well now that we're official you know, can we walk around the south loop and hold hands? You know, what if church people see us? Or when we come to church and worship together, you know, should we sit together because people might say stuff, or should we sit on opposite sides of the room? That they knew genuinely that, you know, when people would see this, that when it would come out publicly, that they had a fear of what people might think. Can I just say that in the same way? John wants to see if these people are really serious about their, their repentance. So he says, if you're serious about this, Come in the water and be baptized. Because if you're serious about your devotion to Jesus, to this coming Messiah, this ain't going to be a problem for you. Not an issue whatsoever. Now, what is baptism here? It simply translates to, to, to overwhelm or to immerse, or in this context, to submerge in water. Now, the water baptism that John is calling for here is different than the one that we practice today. The water baptism of repentance is a baptism in anticipation of the Messiah. Jesus, at this point of the gospel story, has not even shown up yet to do his ministry. So this is a baptism that's declaring our need for Jesus and anticipating his coming. This is a baptism of preparation, The baptisms that we practice today in our churches is the baptism of transformation. It's about new birth and coming to faith in Jesus. Now, what John is doing here is a crazy demand for any Jewish person. Because the way baptism was practiced in Judaism, one of the ways that it was practiced was that it was for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who wanted to become Jewish. This was an act of cleansing they would be baptized in water. This made John's baptism very offensive for the Jews because he's saying to them, you need to be cleansed. Or he's saying to them, your Jewishness does not save you. Let me unpack this. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able with these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You know, for the Jews, they believe that because that they were Jewish, that by ethnicity, they were the chosen people of God. They were saved, they were going to heaven, they had all of God's promises because of Abraham's faithfulness, and John says, no. No, 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 no. You can't live off of Abraham's faithfulness here. Unless you repent and demonstrate it by getting baptized, you are not saved. You are not going to heaven. You are not forgiven. In other words, your Jewish birth will not save you. Instead, John is telling them, you are saved by new birth. It's not by who your earthly father is. It's who your heavenly father is. It's not your tradition, your ancestry, your race, your nationality that saves you. It is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what John says here, my goodness, it is so sobering. Because keep in mind, who is he talking to right now? Right now, he is primarily talking to Jewish people. And we know from other gospel accounts that there are religious leaders who are also in attendance. These were people that read the Old Testament. These were people who revered the law of God. These were people who genuinely believed in Yahweh. And John looks at these people and says, you brood of vipers. Meaning that you are not the family of Abraham. You are not from the family of faith. Instead, you are the family of serpents. My goodness. My goodness. You know, we often think that repentance means that we call out the the big and obvious sinners and then they have to be sorry for their sin. that, that if you're a drunkard or a glutton or an adulterer or a thief or whatever those seven deadly sins are, you're right, you, you have to repent of those sins. That's only half true. Religious people also need to repent of their religion. You know, these are people who think that my good deeds my attendance to church, my giving to church, or because I was raised in this religious home, or I went through these rituals, I went through confession, or I'm Baptist, or I'm Methodist, or I'm Presbyterian, or I was baptized as an infant. You know, this makes me good with God. No, it doesn't. In Philippians 3, Paul calls this all garbage, rubbish, and dung because what you are doing is that you are relying on yourself or some outward human distinctive to save you and not the mercy of God. John calls the religious people to repent of their religion. We see here that true repentance is turning away from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth, either Jewish or Gentile, or what I have done by my own effort, and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. True repentance means we cannot save ourselves. And here's the final insight. If there is true repentance... You will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. Look at verse 8 and 9 here. It says this. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to turn these stones and to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says here that if you have repented in your heart, you will live a life of repentance. You will bear fruit. For example, you can tell an apple tree by the apple that it produces. You can tell that it's an orange tree because it produces oranges. In other words, it should not be a mystery to people that you are a repentant Christian. And if it is a mystery that you're a repentant Christian, you should be concerned. In verse 7, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, every tree, therefore, that is not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If there is no fruit of repentance, you will be destroyed. Back in the ancient days, people didn't plant trees just for the fun of it or because they had some like landscaping project that they want to put on Instagram or whatever, right? No. If you didn't bear fruit back in those days, the tree would become firewood. So the people hear this, and they ask a very natural question. Okay, okay, so, so, so if we're repentant, we have to live a life of repentance, what should we do? Well, what does it look like? John, give us some practical suggestions on what our repentant life looks like. John gives it to them, verse 10 and 11. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So first, John says to the crowd, all right, if you want to live a repentant life, how many tunics do you have in your closet? Do you have more than one? Give the others away. Be kind and be generous. Don't hoard. Give that tunic away. If you have extra food laying around the house, give that away to other people. Then in verse 12, the tax collectors who want to get baptized, they want some help too. Uh, How do we live this out? John says to them, he says, you know what? For people, now keep in mind here, the tax collectors, they were universally hated by everyone because of how dishonest and crooked they were. So John says to them, hey, all right, if you want to live a repentant life, collect no more than what is appointed for you. So if you want to show a repentant life, spare the people. Don't gouge them. Even though Rome turns a blind eye to the fact that you might take more than you have to for yourself, don't do it. Don't line your pocket. Then in verse 14, you know, the so soldiers want to get baptized and they ask John for some help too. You know, how do we live a repentant life? He says in verse 14, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. In other words, treat people justly. Don't spread rumors. Don't be vindictive. Be content with whatever you're making. This is how you show a repentant life. Man, I love what John is saying here. I love it here. Because he is showing us that you can demonstrate a changed life in almost any profession. He doesn't say to show a true sign of repentant life means that you must quit your job and, and, and become a minister. That, that, that's what you need to do. No, what he says instead is he says to be a good tax collector, to be a good soldier, you know, to, 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 to be a good accountant, to be a good engineer, to be a good IT person, to be a good student, to be a good teacher, to be a good nurse, to, to be a good manager. Be good. Be generous with your time, with your talents, and with your treasures. What this means for all of us in this room is that whatever profession you are in, whatever season of life you are in, you can show a changed and repented life. You should not be a mystery to anyone around you that you follow Jesus. As it's been said, bloom where you have been planted. If you do this, you will prove that you're no longer poisonous snakes, but fruitful trees. Once again, this doesn't save you, but it does give proof to what's already true about your heart. So friends, how are you going to receive this message of repentance today? You know, the way that these verses end is that we actually get two examples in verses 18 to 22, a negative example and a positive example. First, let me show you the negative example. This is verses 18 and 20. We see here that this message of repentance gets to Herod the Tetrarch and he hates it. What John is calling out is Herod's adulterous affair with his half brother's wife. Herod is living in sin and John rebukes him. Now just keep this in mind. When you do stuff like this, either you're gonna bring revival or you're gonna bring a riot, okay? It's, It's one of these two things, right? And for John's case here, he is thrown in prison and eventually it will be from this imprisonment John will be beheaded. This is an example of a rejection of repentance. It is a pride, a rebellion that rejects God's invitation to salvation because we choose to sit on the throne of our lives. Herod proved himself to be a viper, to be a serpent. Will that be you? And here's the second example that we have. We have Jesus Being baptized, and in case you didn't know, this is the good example, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved Son; with you I am well pleased." Here, so we see in verse 21 that Jesus gets baptized. But hold up here, hold up, Jesus was sinless. He didn't need to repent of any sins. So why did he get into the water? You know, we actually have an idea of this back in the Gospel of Matthew because it recounts the same baptism story and in this story, it actually tells us what Jesus says in this moment. And let me just show it to you in Matthew chapter 3 verse 15. Jesus says this about his baptism He says, but Jesus answered him, John the Baptist, because John didn't want to baptize Jesus because Jesus was perfect. John's like, please baptize me instead. But Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this baptism of repentance is right That if you want to be right with God, repentance must be true of your heart. So it's in this baptism of repentance, we confess our sins to God and proclaim that we want to follow the Messiah, Jesus. And now when Jesus gets baptized, he is identifying with us, with those who are in need of him. And it's because of Jesus, repentance is not a curse, as hard as it might feel, but repentance is a gift from God. Because it's in repentance, it's through repentance, we experience forgiveness, love, mercy, and freedom. We have a new status. We are called the beloved sons and daughters, and not vipers. Because when you're baptized, you're baptized into Jesus. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. Friends, will you come and repent and come to Jesus? And this is not just a call for those to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior for the first time in their lives. And if that is true for you today, if you're not here today as a professing believer in Jesus, someone who's claimed them as Lord and Savior, please, today in this moment, don't waste another moment, don't get in your car, don't drive out, we don't know what's going to happen. Proclaim faith in Jesus today as your Lord and Savior. Yes, repent. Repent. But this message of repentance is not just for those who want to come to faith first, but it's for all of us. Because repentance is not what you do to receive salvation, it's what you do for the rest of your life. It's a continual growing in grace and Christ-likeness. It's choosing to say every day, I will not live for myself, but for Jesus. You know, in the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, the very first thesis said this. Let me show it to you. Martin Luther wrote, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. May this be true of us. Let's bow our heads and pray. You know, before I pray for us, I'd love to just give you a moment from where you're sitting at and have a chance for you to come to Jesus, to repent that maybe kind of in the last, you know, 35 to 40 minutes, you know, God's been bringing something to your heart. You know, something that's happened, something that was said, something that was done. And and in God's kindness, he's bringing that to your heart and you're feeling the weight of that, would you come to him now? Would you lay it before the cross? Would you turn your direction back to him and ask him to forgive you and to give you the power through the Holy Spirit to live a changed life? Not for yourself. Obviously, it's for your good, but mostly you do so because it is for his glory. Would you do that? And then I'll pray for us. Father God we thank you for the gift of repentance and God I know that uh, those two words are not often put together gift and repentance but father repentance is a gift because it's in repentance you have made a way you have made a way for lost and sinful people to have a right relationship with you and that way is Jesus Christ father we're so grateful we're so thankful God we're reminded in 1st John that, that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just, you are right, and you will forgive us of our sins. God, how can you be just and right to do that? It's because Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to come before him. That, God, you help us to come and cling on to him. That all the sin that weighs on us, all the temptations that we face on a daily basis, God, I pray that you would help us to reject all of that and to have our eyes on Christ to love him and to devote our lives to him. God, I pray, Lord, that for every single one of us in this room, that it would not be a mystery to anyone that we love Jesus, that it would not be a mystery that we live a repentant life, but that, God, that we would show it because, God, we follow you. We love you. So, God, would you be with us and help us in that? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.